2: Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor of history in women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Penn State University, and I'm super excited to be back on the podcast today and with the whole crew: sports writers Jessica Luther, Shireen Ahmed, and Lindsay Gibbs, and my fellow historian Brenda Elsie. Thanks for joining us today. So today, we're going to talk about the WNBA and their opting out of their CBA. We're also going to dive into the Players Coalition beef as kind of exemplified between recent exchanges of words between Eric Reed and Malcolm Jenkins and kind of parse out what's going on here. And Shereen also had a great interview with Dr. Linda Dahl, the first and only fight doctor for the New York State Athletic Commission. And she talks about her new book, Tooth and Nail, The Making of a Female Fight Doctor. Before we jump into that, I wasn't around on the pod the last few weeks to gloat and be super excited about my Red Sox World Championship. And I know that you guys suffer through my fandom, but I think I might have found a moment that at least makes you say maybe a little positive things about the Red Sox. This weekend, the Red Sox uh, flew a plane with Alex Cora back to Caguas, Puerto Rico, to celebrate the championships and... I have just been watching clips from from this. So if you remember Alex Cora, first Puerto Rican manager to win a World Series in history, he comes from a baseball family. Joey Cora played for 11 years in the MLB and also was a coach. But it's really significant. And Alex Cora is somebody who, when he took over managing the Red Sox in the wake of Maria, as he was negotiating his contract, the only thing he asked for was a plane with supplies to fly to the island. So he is somebody who exemplifies uh, the, the pride and the tenacity of island I hold so dear. And it was just so great to watch the celebration in Caguas. Everybody came out into the streets. He was dancing bomba y blena. And it was just amazing. I don't know if you saw any pictures or clips, but I just want to take a minute to gush about Alex Cora and the Red Sox in Puerto Rico.
3: He's amazing. Those were amazing pictures, Amira. (laughs) For people who don't know, Caguas is about 20 miles south of San Juan. Is that right? So, I mean, it's not like a huge booming metropolis, but people came from all over the island. So there were all these great stories of people, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. and getting a chairs and lunch ready. And they just look so happy. And Alex Cora is like a dream. He's just amazing. (laughs) Could he be sweeter? The one thing, can I say one thing in my gush, though? I'm ready for him to get a little political. Because right now he's super Roberto Clemente style, you know, and I love it. And I feel like he's just on the break of, like, going, you know, in hard on Puerto Rican politics because he's obviously, like, really smart and dedicated. And you could see a few
2: times over the years where he did, like, lend a sentence here or there. I'm, you know, I'm watching in almost terror because I've been telling you all year how much I love this squad. Particularly, I love the Black and, and Latino players on the squad and John Henry, the owner, was like, oh yeah, maybe we'll visit the White House. We'll see about that. And it will break my heart. And so I'm just waiting (laughs) and hoping (laughs) that they don't do that. But this was a a great sight to see. And I was really appreciative of how Cora put the ownership on the spot. Like in his first interview right after winning, he said, you know, I'm going to ask ownership to give me a plane to send me to Caguas and on national TV. And I think that that was amazing. And so right now I'm just basking in the kind of, Pride of the Island. And I'm getting my aunt to send me a shirt. They made shirts that they were selling on the corner during the celebration of like the Boston Red Sox logo, but mashed up with like the Puerto Rican flag and like it's in Spanish. And I was like, hello, somebody sent me, me that, that shirt. shirt. Thanks. I was just so happy by that.
4: So I want to congratulate you, Amira, and all Red Sox fans on this win. Congratulate. Oh my goodness.
0: Sorry. The- what?
4: <laughs> no, I have a- I'm not heartless and soulless. I do also really want to congratulate Puerto Ricans out there and to love this joy. And after such an incredible tragedy to have something like this and be able to own and claim it. Like I remember when the Japanese women's uh, national team won after the massive earthquake and what that win meant for them. So especially after such an incredibly devastating tragedy. So congratulations. I love this hope. I love this joy. And those pictures are wonderful. And I'm really like hearty. Congratulations to you, Mira.
2: Can somebody just mark this moment in time? I was
4: going to say, if only you
0: could frame audio.
3: <laughs> I am... Cora does miracles. I am
2: very
1: uncomfortable right now. I would like us to move on
0: immediately.
2: <laughs> so this week, it was announced that the WNBA players have decided to opt out of their CBA. For more on this and what it means and where we go from here, Lindsay, take us away. Whew.
1: lots of big questions there, Amira, and I don't have many answers. So yeah, as Amira said, WNBA players, this was a much anticipated and expected decision. What they have done is they have opted out of their current collective bargaining agreement, which means that they will start trying to negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement. However, this current agreement Is valid still until the end of the 2019 season. So any new collective bargaining agreement would begin for the 2020 season. So this isn't an immediate terrifying moment for fans of the league. There is time to kind of figure out what the next steps are. I can get into a lot of thoughts and feelings I have about this. I'm very glad they did decide to opt out. I think that there is a lot to be... I'm a little bit disappointed in their media strategy. I feel like the president of the Players Union, the vice president of the Players Union, Terry Jackson, who I love and who is wonderful and I think is doing wonderful things. But she does not talk to the media often at all. And I think I've seen how much Michelle Roberts and the NBA has done a great job of controlling the narrative by utilizing the media. So I I do have concerns there. I don't think that... There's nothing given, there's nothing guaranteed that they're going to get a better deal. And I think like that's really important for us to remember. However, I do want to start this conversation on a positive note by reading the words of Neka Gumake, who is the president of the committee for the players. She's the, the players president for the union. And she did their big media thing was she wrote a piece for the Players Tribune called Bet on Women. And so let's just read that to set the tone, and we can go from there. I'm not going to read the whole thing. That would be crazy. NECA says, I'm sure there will be people out there who judge us harshly for opting out, who say that we should be grateful for what we have. They'll tell us that the league is losing money. They'll say that it's just economics. They'll say it's just fair. And then they'll definitely, definitely tell me they can beat me one-on-one. To me, opting out means not just believing in ourselves, but going one step further, betting on ourselves. It means being a group of empowered women in the year 2018, not just feeling fed up with the status quo, but going one step further, rejecting the status quo. And it means taking a stand, not just for the greatest women's basketball players of today, but going one step further. Taking a stand for the greatest women's basketball players of tomorrow.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful piece. It made me cry when I was reading it. And one of my favorite lines from it, uh, NECA says, I don't want the best and the brightest female athletes in the world dreaming about playing in the NBA. And I just, oh, I was like, oh, yes. I echo Lynn's here. I I was really glad to see that they formally and officially opted out. I think everyone expected that. And especially after this season, we've talked about this repeatedly, the issues with travel. Um, and this isn't, you know, we've talked a lot about what they should be paid, what they deserve to be paid. But it's so much more than that, right? Like it's about, and I think maybe NECA wrote about this, like the overall experience of being a WNBA player that needs to be better. You know, I don't, the league is interesting. You know, we're about to go into labor negotiations here. And I think everyone really needs to remember that, like whatever messaging is coming out of the WNBA, we need to be careful about like taking it on its face because they will be doing negotiations with these women um, and they want to win. So there was this interesting dust up. What's the right word? Forbes ended up parting ways with a professor of economics named David Berry, who is famous in our circles for writing a lot about the WNBA and the economics around the league. And one of his big points over and over again is that the league loves to tell us how they are losing money all the time without ever actually releasing information to back that up and how they talk about these women as costs and rather than incentives. And he wrote a piece last week that WNBA apparently didn't like it very much, put a lot of pressure on Forbes, and they pulled the whole thing and then eventually parted ways With Dave, David. So I I think that part of it is is something to pay attention to and to be careful about when we're consuming media around this. Sure.
4: Yeah. I just wanted to reiterate we all really appreciated the Players Tribune piece, and my favorite quote from that was, "We don't want any handouts. If you believe that we do, then you must have never watched a minute of our league. We just want what we're worth. We just want what's right. We just want to leave this game a little better than we found it for the next generation, and that." really hit me because so often on Burn It All Down we have incredible WNBA players and they very much talk about elevating the game and sort of cementing it for future generations like these players aren't in the now they're so unselfish in the way that they really really want to better this for stability to make it better for future players and that really really affected me also I just wanted to note that the solidarity for this I saw Hillary Knight retweet it. Megan Rapino like tweeted out in support of this decision Because there's tremendous amounts of solidarity from the U.S. women's national team, the soccer team, because they went through the same thing. Like, I just, I think this is really, really important. And I love that. And I hope that people still continue to support this decision. Hashtag the power of the W.
2: Yeah, Brenda?
3: Yeah, I only come at this from sort of knowing from women's soccer, some of these same issues and union organizing. I mean, a lot of the tactics that management are going to use, they use against workers everywhere, you know, whether it's in a, a shoe factory or a car company or teachers unions and things like that. So I take Jessica's point about, you know, being mindful of this as a labor negotiation, I would just like to say a couple of things first, like all of these discussions tend to totally ignore the fact that men's sports get a ton of investment that they're they did not emerge they did not emerge without funding from the state and public investment, public investment, whether it's stadiums, whether it's security, Madison square Garden, I see public cops all over that place. who's paying for it? We are so. One, you know, men's sports did not just like arrive in this universe popular. They were supported. They had investment. So the whole idea that somehow women's aren't marketable and men's are, is, it's not, it has no context to it. And then the second thing is just like, like the quote that you read, Lindsay, about, you know, feeling like someone's just going to go from talking economics and making a rational argument to telling them that they can beat them one-on-one. Is exactly how these conversations go. Last week, burn it all down. We had a discussion about FIFA play. What is the reaction? It goes from, okay, let's talk about prize money and how women's prize money is not proportionately the same as men's prize money. And then it goes straight to women's soccer sucks. It's slow. It'll never be good. It goes right to bully bus trolling. At at a certain point, you feel like the people who are doing this just want to say that from the beginning. They just want to go right in on your slow, your weak you're never going to to be president. All that, like what little boys say to little girls on the back of the bus in the 1980s, at least, when I was there, you know, you'll never be any good. And that's like, it seems like at the end of the day, what they really want to talk about.
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly spot on there. And the other thing that it brings up, I'm really glad that you and Jess, you know, talked about frame this as labor and talked about like union busting tactics and the fact that it's a union. And I think it's hard in general to get, people widely to accept and understand athletics as a form of labor, which is why you get when players, even male players, are opting out or in negotiations with ownership you have people siding with owners and it's like in what I think Shakia actually tweeted this this week like I don't understand who sides with owners like there's a huge power imbalance there except that we put a a bunch of zeros on the end of paychecks and suddenly people are like oh this isn't really labor they're they're playing a game this is a hobby and I think that that gets even kind of ratcheted up when we talk about women and girls in sports and so in particular the idea that they are laborers and they need to control their labor, have leverage is something that's so hard to get around, which is why I really like that the hashtag, you know, this year was watch me work. And I was talking about this the other day in a talk I was giving about how significant it is to frame the entire thing is no watch me work. Yeah. Watch me like do this work, like be good on the court. But also like I'm in your face telling you I am working. This is my job and I need to be traded equitably. Lindsay?
3: Yeah, I
1: think if if we're gonna have a theme around our conversations today between this and then upcoming players coalition, it's gonna be organizing is hard <laughs> and getting a bunch of people on the same page is really really difficult. So I really admire the unity that the players have been showing. I actually have a piece coming out this week on Think Progress. God willing, it will be up by the time you guys hear this episode. If you ask why it wasn't up last week, blame Maryland, but i <laughs> You know, I've been looking into the history of collective bargaining within the WNBA, and I talked with Pam Wheeler last week, who was the head of the union from 1999 through 2014. So she was the head a negotiator for all the WNBA contracts up until this point. You know, before she got involved, before the players came together in 1999 to form a union, there were no minimum salaries, there was no year round health care. There was nothing like they had absolutely nothing. None of these things are just given to players by management. Every single thing they had to fight for through the union. I mean, we're talking free agency. They didn't get free agency until about 10 years into the WNBA. And the rules are still incredibly limiting. But she said that, you know, last time they were in such a bad place when they negotiated their last collective bargaining agreement in 2014, which is the one that they're currently opting out of. Because in the middle of negotiations, the Los Angeles Sparks franchise almost completely uh, collapsed. The owner decided he was losing too much money, tried to sell it, put it up for bids, and Magic Johnson came in at the last moment to really you know, swoop in and, and save the day. And, you know, she said it is she said that she doesn't know of any union (laughs) in pro sports who's had to go through a collective bargaining and negotiation while one of your marquee franchises is literally about to fall fold. That takes away so much power, you know, that takes away so much leverage. And so right now, I think it's so scary because, A... There's no president of the WNBA right now. Let's not forget that. <laughs> like like Lisa Borders is gone. There is no president. So they're looking for a president right now. And number two, you have what's going on with the New York Liberty, with James Dolan just kind of shipping, like being open that he wants to sell the team, shipping them out to Westchester. So they've got to find some stability in the New York Liberty. And that's a really, that's going to be a really huge thing. And I'm hoping that that happens before this next season, because I think it's going to be really damaging for the players and for any leverage they have if a franchise like the New York Liberty is being is still being treated like it, it is. On the other hand, what is good for them is the Las Vegas Aces and the stability that they have found and the success that they found from such an early, early age, I think has really rejuvenated the league. And I'm excited to see how that helps. Obviously, we all want to see these players earn more money, but there are some other things that they're fighting for as well. I talked to a lot of uh, retired players this week who reminded me that there's no pensions. The WNBA players get no pensions. There's a retirement fund, but there's absolutely you know, no security for players who retire, and they'd certainly like to see the WNBA provide more to the players that have helped build its business. And I think a lot of this is going to come down to marketing as well. They're going to need to put some money into marketing and figure out how are we going to do this? Uh, Marin Fader, who's a friend of the show wrote a great piece for Bleacher Report this week, looking at the, what players want, what players are asking for. And, One of the things she did was she got an interview with Adam Silver out of it. Adam Silver, of course, still has an insane amount of power for when it comes to the WNBA. Even the WNBA president, I feel like he has more power than Lisa Borders does. And he often is setting that narrative, like Jess said, you know, he's he's often pretty negative about the WNBA talks in frustrating terms about how it hasn't grown enough about how they're all surprised that it's not more popular by now. And she was asking him about about what many people are calling for, which is ESPN to be a better partner, get more games on ESPN. And he came right out and said, getting more games on ESPN is not a priority. (laughs) I'm just like, what are we doing here? And so those things, getting better TV contracts, getting better exposure for the league, these things are going to be just as important for the players to find a way to fight through the contracts as getting bigger salaries. So, as
2: Lindsay noted, there's some common themes between our segments this week, especially around organizing, coalition building, and how hard that can be. So over the last week and a half, you might have seen some news regarding Eric Reed of the Carolina Panthers, um, Malcolm Jenkins, Josh Norman, and a lot of the discussion has been around the players' coalition between people who used to be in the players' coalition. And how a group of NFL players took varying avenues in the wake of Colin Kaepernick's protest... Over the last year or two. So this really came to, you know, bubbled up on the surface two weeks ago when Eric Green and Malcolm Jenkins, when the Panthers were playing the Eagles and before the game even started, Eric and Malcolm were jawing at each other and had words and had to be separated before the coin toss. So there was some clear bad blood on display there after the game when pressed for comment. Eric Reed was very candid, calling Malcolm Jenkins a sellout, a neocolonialist, and saying that he used CAP's protest to fund his organization. And Malcolm Jenkins responded by saying, You know, I'm glad he's back in the league, I support CAP and what many in the media detailed the high road the high road which as we might bring up later demonstrates a sort of way that they've been set up as a dichotomy like a good person and a bad person like the high road to not engage in in truth telling which is you know some of what eric was doing so that was two weeks ago it has continued this week um players like Josh Norman had who were active in the Players' Coalition spoke up, saying he's not only taking a shot at Malcolm, he's taking a shot at everyone in the Players' Coalition. I'm a part of that, a lot of guys are a part of that. And I feel um, because he was a part of it at one point, he went to the direction of, oh, but if Kaepernick's not the leader, then this is all for naught. And our take was, I'm sorry, but if guys voted for Cap to be that, then okay, but that that's not what we did. He went on to say, you can say all you want, but the thing is, you can't tell another man what they're doing if they're not going to come in here and be a man about themselves and tell us the direction if they want of uh, what they want to do. And this is alluding to the fact that Um, Colin didn't necessarily come into meetings and have these meetings with the ownership that the players' coalitions were set up. Reed kind of responded to that by going into large detail about what happened at the players' owner meeting last October and detailing the way in which he—what he he meant by Malcolm Jenkins selling out the cause or the protest— for funding so he detailed incentivized almost like players contract that would prioritize uh, and give money to organizations coming out of the players coalition community organizations in exchange for no more protest. And so Reed says, quote, Malcolm called me on the phone and asked if the L- NFL made a donation to the Players Coalition, would that be enough for me to stop protesting? He said they were willing to do $5 million and I told him no. He then asked me, well, how much would it take? So I ended that conversation. I reported back to the other players what he said to me, and at that point, we, ro- we removed ourselves from the Players Coalition. That weekend, he stopped protesting. He said it was time for everyone to stop protesting, and he didn't protest for the rest of the year. And so this is a conversation that I think requires a lot of delicacy and nuance and not falling into the tropes that we see, that I see all the time, you know, teaching history where you have like a legitimized tactic or way of protest, say Martin Luther King, and then... Say, okay, and then Malcolm X is like the other. And I see a lot of takes that kind of boil it down to that dichotomy instead of really saying, listen, there's a lot of complex issues here. There's a range of tactics, there's a range of personalities, and there's a lot at stake that they're kind of wading through. And so I will attempt to have that kind of nuanced conversation about what's going on and what these splits reveal and tell us about the workings of power in the NFL and also the work that it takes to actually try to push the needle and enact change. Lindsay?
1: Yeah, I think, as you said, there's got to be nuance here. This isn't a case of good guys versus bad guys. This is all people trying to uh, change a system. And often what a lot of social justice and a lot of uh, progressive movements boil down to is people who think that the answer has to come from working within established systems versus people who think the only work, the only real and pure work can be done from outside of these systems and pushing them from the outside. And that's an ongoing debate between that you will find going on in most circles on people who are trying to really change the status quo. And I think the answer usually is yes, both. Uh, And that's kind of how I feel here. I want to say that I... I attended a Players Coalition event in uh, Capitol Heights, Maryland a few months ago with Anquan Bolden. So this was in June. And I was really impressed with the work they were doing. They were holding a small criminal justice reform forum for state attorney uh, candidates in Prince George's County, Maryland. And they had gotten a bunch of people from the community in there and had the candidates for state attorney, which we all know, is, you know, a much more important position than most voters give it credit for. And they, you know, put these candidates on the spot asking them about their opinion on all sorts of reforms within the criminal justice system. I found it to be a very impressive feat. And I thought that they were doing a great job and i think that the players coalition has done a lot of great work that said i i feel like eric reed all of his feelings and frustrations are incredibly incredibly valid and I can't help but feel for him and both also admire the way he is using his opportunity back in the NFL. So we all know he wasn't signed for the first few weeks of the season. He was a free, unsigned free agent despite his talent. The Carolina Panthers decided to sign him and he is just he's continued to take a knee. He has continued to pretty much every time a microphone is in his face. He seizes that opportunity to talk about the issues that he's fighting for to talk about his problems with the players coalition and to really try and push the narrative forward. Uh there was a quote this week where somebody was asked how Ron Rivera, the coach of the Carolina Panthers, how the discussion about whether or not Eric Reed would take a knee went down and Eric Reed goes He didn't have a choice. He had to get behind it. This is what I was going to do. And, you know, I thought that was very powerful as well. So I've really admired Eric Reed and how he has stuck to this opportunity. I do probably think that the Players Coalition and the founders there saw an opportunity to partner with the NFL and saw the opportunity to get a lot of money towards causes they felt passionate about and seize that opportunity. And I also and they're doing some really good work with that opportunity. At the same time, I think it's completely understandable why Reed and Kaepernick felt backstabbed by that.
0: Yeah,
2: totally, Jess.
0: Yeah, I think this is just one of those both and situations, and I just don't feel like we are never as a society primed for a both and conversation. But I feel like particularly now, and I don't know. It's I I totally agree. I I can't but watch. I don't like to watch videos online, but I will watch all the videos of Eric Reed <laughs> talking about this because I'm so. It is really something to watch someone in their yeah, his convictions and how well he speaks about all of this stuff and he cares very deeply. But, yeah, I do think this is normal in organizing. I just think we're seeing it on a really public platform. Anyone who's ever been around any kind of organizing, even as a spectator on the outside, has witnessed this exact argument internal to an organization. And as both Amira and Lindsay were saying... This is kind of the nuts and bolts of how change gets done, but it's also incredibly personal to the people doing it. And so everything is, I mean, what we're talking about with racial justice and, you know, police brutality, like, these are life and death matters. These guys have probably the biggest platform of anyone talking about this. And they're up against an incredibly powerful and popular organization. Of course, this is going to be messy. And... I just don't know if we're in a place as a society or news media in particular, NFL media, that can really handle this. A very white media, like, let's remember this all the time. They're talking about a lot of white men who are the ones trying to interpret and analyze um, this messaging. And they're often very, very bad at it. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a smarter analysis than that. this is both and and. I can understand exactly where both sides are coming from. And we just have to figure out how to hold that.
2: Yeah. And I think like, just to come back to this point that you raised about the kind of whiteness of the media, we've talked about this, you know, we talk about this all the time and we can see how that comes into play. And like, I mentioned the, the kind of framing of it, the headlines of like, That seemingly vault Malcolm Jenkins or Josh Norman, which is funny, actually, thinking about the irony of, like, vaulting Josh Norman as, like, the good guy when most of the time sports media is pillaring him, right? But, like, the way that Reed is the adjectives used to describe him, and I think it points to one of the things about the Players Coalition is that it feels safer, right? It feels like something you can hold and that doesn't make you feel as uncomfortable. These people are doing work in the community. They're having, you know, Devin McCourty and and folks are up at Harvard meeting with criminal justice folks, talking about the criminal justice system. They're in boardrooms, they're in suit and ties. They're kind of, you know, very respectable in their protest. And I think that feels more comfortable. I think it's very uncomfortable when you have... Somebody like Eric Reed saying, you know, talking about subversive groups, talking about neo, neocol- like the fact that he's using the words neocolonialism. I think is scary. I think it's a lot less comfortable because he, Eric Reed is not concerned about your comfort. And I think that there's there's a power in that, which is that there's tactics that have been used in protests to make people feel comfortable. And then there's a lot of people who are at the, like, as you said, this is life or death and your comfort is not my responsibility. and But I think that's one of the reasons that we see that kind of backing of, say, the Players Coalition is because it's safer and it's comfortable and you can escape some of the hard questions. Whereas what Eric says and does is indict everybody in the system and doesn't let you off the hook for that. Um, And he said, you know, when we started, Colin and I said, nothing will change unless you talk about it. So we're going to continue to talk about it. We're going to continue to hold America accountable to the standard it says on paper that we're all created equal because it's not that way. And we're going to continue to push forward and I think that's what you see him doing Lindsay
1: yeah I just want to shout out if anyone wants to read more about this there's actually a great piece that Howard Bryant wrote for ESP in the magazine called a protest divided uh, he wrote it in January so many many months ago so this has been been simmering but it gives a great kind of behind the, the scenes story about how this, uh, this movement fragmented in very as I said understandable ways
2: Next up, Shireen talks to Dr. Linda Dahl.
4: I am so excited to have Dr. Linda Dahl on the show today. Dr. Dahl is an otolaryngologist in a private practice in Manhattan. She was one of only a few women to ever serve as ringside doctor for the New York Athletic Commission. She's a native Midwesterner, and she received her MD from the University of Minnesota Medical School. She is the author of A Clinician's Guide to Breastfeeding, an evidence-based evaluation. She's also author of the book we're going to talk about today, Tooth and Nail, The Making of a Female Fight Doctor. Such a good read. And when she's not Dancing in the Car to Shake Your Ass by Mystical. She's also a mom and woman extraordinaire. Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down, Dr. Dahl. Thank you so much. So let's jump right in. The description of your years in residency and her training are really far from the glamour that people see on shows like Ray's Anatomy or whatnot. And I really appreciate appreciated your honesty about your experience. But if you could go back and talk to yourself at that time, What would you have done differently and what advice would you give to yourself during that time?
5: I think I would have – yeah, it was completely different. Uh, And I even – I remember when I was finished with residency and and Grey's Anatomy came out, I watched the show and I get so angry (laughs) because it made me nostalgic for what never even happened (laughs) to anybody really. I think I would – there's so many parts I would have – treasured more, even though it was a really hellish experience. I think I would have documented more and kept track of the experience more because it was such a singular experience and people don't have those experiences anymore. Like in residency training, it's not the same. They go home, they have certain work hours. So I think I really would have recorded more and been more aware of kind of the small beauties in the big, you know, hell that the whole experience was.
4: And being one of the only women in that male-dominated program, it's also something as sports writers and sports historians that we understand very much and can empathize with. So being in that space was in the program was clearly not easy. And there's a line you had in the book that really hit with me. It said, I'd worked so hard in school and used self-awareness as a front for self-deprecation. But now that you're this amazingly well-known author, have a thriving practice, do you still struggle with that type of imposter syndrome at any time or any? Any of those type of insecurities?
5: I mean sure we're all we all have insecurities that just that makes us human. but what I've learned though is that instead of considering those those the weaknesses as my downfall or the vulnerability I should say as the, the vulnerability as a weakness, I now can realize that that's how I can connect to people better. So I feel like as humans, we connect to each other more through our vulnerabilities than we do through our strengths. And even though, and even especially in a place like New York, where everything is about power and who you know, and you know, what you have become and what your label is, those things kind of repel us from each other. We can admire someone from afar if, you know, if they represent these amazing things, whatever they are, but the way we really connect to them and feel human and feel like we're part of something is through our vulnerability. So I, if anything, I've learned to embrace those parts of myself.
3: Can you
4: give us a little bit of a background on how you actually got interested in boxing before your journey began as a fight doctor was it how did you get interested in boxing like how did you even know about boxing of all sports
5: i didn't know about any sports when i was when i was growing up cuz my i always joke that my family sport was eating cuz my parents are from the Middle East, and we literally spent my whole childhood just cooking and watching TV and whatever. And when I was in residency, I was with my new husband. And we'd been dating for a while, and he's an artist. And he would sit at home mostly drawing pictures of politicians on C-SPAN. And I would go off to the, you know, the residency program, the internship, and just deal with a lot of, you know, situations that I had never seen or experienced before—really violent, bloody, graphic, awful. And one day I came home and instead of C SPAN, boxing was on. And I'm just like, What is this? <laughs> what is happening? And he's like, This is amazing. You know, they're live models and they're moving. And he was just just wrapped with the movement and the bodies and the muscularity and you know, because he didn't have any access to model drawing labs. And so he started drawing these boxers. And then, and also because the Bronx, when we moved there 20 years ago was like almost like 98 to 99% Caribbean. And it was a mixture of all kinds of different ethnicities. And he was this very white man and he felt it and he felt totally out of place and couldn't connect to people. But he learned, I guess, from the guys at the bodega where he got his coffee and where he gets papers or whatever, that they were talking about boxing all the time. So he just kind of became interested. And he found that as a way to connect with the local community. And he brought it home. And then, you know, it was just there all the time. Every time I come home, I'm like this again. <laughs> and then he finally, one day, he not only wanted me to watch it, but he wanted me to pay extra for it. <laughs> and we were so broke. I mean, I was living, we we're living on nothing. So for me to shell out whatever it was 50 bucks for this pay-per-view fight that he wanted to see was really was a huge sacrifice. I mean, it was like food for a week. And so I eventually caved and watched this fight. It was the first fight between Mosley and Delahoya. And I was I was an instant fan. I was blown away by it.
4: Wow. That's incredible. And as you started to become the fight doctor, was it difficult for you to reconcile the violence in the ring with your training as a physician? Because I I really liked. Where you said in the book as well, you had written about another uh, colleague of yours who had explained to you that the boxers will do everything in their power, so you don't, you know, call them unable to continue. But so, how did you sort of reconcile all of that
5: happening? Yeah, I guess I didn't judge the fact that the fights existed or not, except in the sense that the boys and men fighting had only became fighters if they had no other options in life. You know, it was either like live on the street you know, live in this, you know, crime, you know, sort of crime filled life full of violence and loss or be a fighter. And if you were a fighter, it was a way out of that life. So I I saw it as that for them. And then whether or not, you know, condoning the violence and is it right? Is it wrong? I mean, it's horrifying, but it was also really not that different than what these guys were living on the street and what I saw when I was in the Bronx, because they would come in with, you know, bullets in their skull and like you know, slashes across the back of their head. And, and, a, you know, motor vehicle accidents, I was so used to kind of cleaning them up from these horrifying injuries that boxing just seemed at least, you know, safer <laughs> and more likely to give them something back. And really very similar populations of young men. Wow. In terms of the boxers you met,
4: Some of them are actually known uh, domestic abusers, like namely Mike Tyson, with whom you actually detailed a really interesting encounter when you were at a conference in Las Vegas. Um, Floyd Mayweather is another example, but did the topic of their violence against women in their personal lives ever come up in the professional circuit, or was it just something that wasn't at all addressed?
5: Well, boxing, when I was part of it, the world of boxing was really just men. And it wasn't like, here's a bunch of sexist men. It was just men. <laughs> and it was men being men around men without really thinking about women, you know, in terms of like, how do women fit in or what are women's roles in this place? It was just, there were just none and very similar to the surgical world. And also what's also really interesting. i really just thinking about this right now is that part of the training for boxing is suppression of the male sexuality. Like they're not allowed to have sex for six weeks or even masturbate, nothing for six weeks until their fight, which is interesting, right? Like they have to hold in all of their sort of urges and, you know, turn it into everything to turn it into to go there and, and fight. So it, it's not, I mean, it kind of makes sense that, for somehow that like sex and rage and violence is all kind of mixed together in that mindset. But in terms of a discussion, absolutely not. It was never discussed. It was never thought about. I mean, I thought about it and I, you know, considered the situations that I was in, but I was the fight doctor. And as the fight doctor, ironically, I was this like little woman in this world of huge, violent, you know, powerful men, but I got to be more powerful than they were.
4: Yeah. Wow. That's, I had no idea about the boxers or the fighters not being able to engage in any type of sex acts before. I had no idea about this. I'm learning so much right now from you. Um, Yeah, Yeah, it's really interesting. Would you actually recommend being a fight doctor to other women?
5: No, absolutely not. I mean, in fact, the biggest question I was asked, the question I was asked the most as a female fight doctor was why do you want to do this? by the men, you know, the boxers were always questioning me, like, why are you here? Why are you doing this? Like, why are you surrounding yourself with this? Why are you on all these dirty old smelly men and blood? And it's like, what, why, why are you, (laughs) what do you get from this? So, yeah, I mean, I I just don't think it's something that most women would really want to be around. And, you know, I had my own reasons for wanting to to be around it. And I think a lot of it for me had to do with, you know, feeling like I'd had so much, I'd experienced and witnessed so much trauma in my life that I wanted to feel like, you know, here's trauma, you know, here's look trauma, I can face you, you know, I can take you on. And, you know, I wanted to face my fear of, you know, of trauma and my fear of what could happen by choosing to go into those places.
4: Wow. That's so interesting. Do you still enjoy boxing? Do you watch it? Do you watch MMA? Do you have a favorite boxer?
5: I have a favorite boxer, but I love Deontay Wilder, not because I love him, but because his the most recent fight against Ortiz was the single greatest fight I've ever seen in my life. But it was also like, because he was losing and he just pulled something out of his being and ended up winning that fight. And it just for the sheer kind of primalcy of it. But i would never really been a fight fan. You know, I only ever watched fights when I was working ringside. Even now when I, I'll go back for the last year or so, I've been going back just to sew up the fighters and it's not like I sit there and enjoy it. I've never enjoyed it. Like, this is fun. Let's go to a fight. But I could tell like when I, when they walk into the ring, I'm like, this guy's going to win. It's going to be this round that he wins in. And this is how it's going to go down. Like, it's funny. I could almost tell by their body language and how they're moving. And, and MMA, I've just never... I tried to be a fan. I'm just not into it. It's a different kind of sport because it's it's bloodlust and it's much more dynamic. And there's all this, you know, sort of they can get bloody, which people like, and it can look more violent. But because there's no head trauma, it, it's just a very different kind of sport. And I think you saw that if you saw the Conor McGregor Mayweather fight. I mean, boxing is about trying to kill your opponent, and MMA is is a very different type of type of experience. But yeah, I just can't, you know, and I think now too, I'm not in the same emotional place. I don't enjoy watching violence, even in movies. It's, I don't like it.
4: Would it be the same thing for women's boxing as well? But like, would you consider getting into a space where it was a women's own, like a women's boxing scene? Is that something that might appeal to you?
5: I love that you asked me that because I have such, such mixed emotions about women's boxing. And I always have. And I, and I thought, it, I think about it like this. I think about the three, three of the most deadly sports that exist today. They're boxing, race car driving, and hockey. 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 Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So and those sports are predominantly men. I mean, there are a few women here and there, but that's a man, those are men's sports. So and the people that do that do those sports, more boxing, but I could say maybe not race car driving as much, but they're so as a society, it's like we're more accepting of watching men. Maim and kill themselves than we are of watching that happen to women. And it's even harder for me to watch women do it to each other. And it, then it gets mixed into all like sort of like violence against women, and women aren't like sort of naturally drawn towards hitting like men are. It's just a, it churns a lot of stuff inside of me. And I think too, you know, along the lines of like men boxing, the men that box do it because they have no really other options in life. But, but, you know, so. Is that true of women? You know, and, and is it saying that, okay, women going into boxing, do you have any other options in life? Or what is your motivation for wanting to do this kind of sport where you can go in and die? And it's hard for me. Like, personally, it's hard for me to watch women punch each other.
4: Well, wow, that's really intense. So the, the the three that you named, the boxing, the hockey, and the race, driving, those are from medical perspectives that in, that you're, you're sharing that, that they are that dangerous? Like, for, as, as a physician, you're saying?
5: Yeah. I mean, there are actually, there have been studies that have shown that the, that those are three of the most deadly sports. Wow.
4: I feel like I've learned so much and I could probably talk to you forever, not just about how our daughters are controlling our behavior <laughs> when we listen to music, <laughs> but just about, you know, everything. I, it's so fascinating. I do recommend everybody listening to get a copy of Tooth and Nail, The Making of a Female Fight Doctor. It's a fascinating look into a world that I even as a sports writer know very little about in in that world that I think that we don't think about where we just think about maybe athlete or coaches. We don't think about people that are in the, in the scene as well and how much they do and what their experiences are. So I thank you so much a for writing the book and B for being on burn it all down today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. I think we have a lot of things burning today, and all of us usually come together. It's more like a bonfire. So I'm ready to get into this. Brenda, can you kick us
3: off? Sure. This week, I am burning the birthday celebration of Diego Maradona. And I think that's probably a really unpopular take in global soccer. But for those of you who don't know Diego Maradona, he's probably seen as The best or one of the best soccer players of all time. He's usually up there with Pelé, neither of which I think holds a candle to Messi, but that's off topic. I don't want to get in the weeds. But Messi's compatriot, Diego Maradona, led the Argentine national team to the 1986 World Cup victory with his famous hand of God, which was a cheating handball that somehow is seen as anti-imperialist. And then he went on to win several titles for Napoli, and become a really beloved anti-imperialist icon. He was friends with Fidel Castro. He supported resistance to the dictatorship in Argentina. And all of that is really important. But on his birthday week, I just am befuddled by all of my progressive, seemingly feminist ally friends who pour out these nostalgic, romantic commemorant Of Diego Maradona without mentioning the fact that he is a raging sexist and when I mean raging he has been videotaped assaulting his girlfriends he absolutely says the most demeaning and sexist things towards women his behavior with female journalists is reprehensible and to sort of put him as the icon of rebellion against the Argentine dictatorship, which is so, so often done, is such a slap in the face from people who came, people like mothers of the Plaza de Macho, who did so, so, so much more. And don't forget, he never missed a game. He never missed a contract. He was never put in jail. So, uh, yeah, like, great and all, but... You know, let's not forget he's a raging sexist and he risked very little to do that. So I want to burn not the people who are like, hey, he was a great footballer. He meant something to overcome England from the perspective of Argentina. That's totally fine. But the people who just will not include the fact that he is a raging sexist in their consideration of him. I would like to burn your erasure of all the women who have suffered him that are in his life or... Around the football community. Burn. Burn, <laughs> burn.
2: Burn. Burn.
3: You thought I'd never end that tirade?
4: Burn. Burn. No, it's a great tirade. Burn. Shireen? Okay, so there was a bit of a spoiler about this. Y'all know I was going to burn this because I tweeted it out saying I was going to burn it. We're still reeling from the after effects and devastation of the Tree of Life Synagogue massacre. And you know, we've seen really incredible efforts of solidarity and beauty, which is really important. I know that in certain cities, including Toronto, Muslims and Christians came and held hands of like peace rings around synagogues while people worshipped because of the absolute, fear for worshippers' lives as they're in these beautiful places of worship. So, you know, Gritty's been out there, props to Gritty. But the Pittsburgh Penguins, yes, the same Pittsburgh Penguins who went and celebrated their Stanley Cup win at the White House with 45, they decided to do something meaningful. So what they did was they actually had a Star of David on their jerseys, which was really beautiful and very necessary. They actually had, you know, moments of silence. And the ceremony was really, really good. And I'm reading this off a Deadspin article. The ceremony was the proper amount of restraint, which is really important. And, you know, it was appropriate for the, the thing, the uh, the situation. Now, what was completely inappropriate was just before the ceremonial puck drop, they had a Blue Lives Matter flag come out. So we're all sitting there going, well, wait, what? Wait wait a minute. Yeah. Blue Lives Matter. Yes. The same movement that came out in response to the very necessary Black Lives Matter, which is absolutely talking about systematic, systemic, dangerous, violent discrimination against black people in America who are absolutely being targeted by police. So wait a minute. Blue Lives Matter. Yes. And the shooting in Tree of Life. Absolutely. There was two officers that were killed as well. Now, I understand that, but I don't think conflating the blue lives matter is appropriate or necessary. And I think that it actually offended a lot of people who absolutely marginalized communities relate to the terror that the Jewish community experienced. Marginalized communities who are also targeted by police groups. So I'm sorry, I'm not here for this. I am so close to permanently canceling the Pittsburgh Penguins. Like if it wasn't for my memories of Mario Lemieux I absolutely would and Gritty however Gritty's not enough to make me tolerate this absolute foolishness and I'm not here for it and I want to burn it
2: burn burn Burn. definitely burn I'll jump in here with my burn and it comes from New Jersey this week. It's a group of parents at <laughs> we're all uh, burns come
1: <laughs> we're all good burns originating from. Sorry, <laughs>
2: I resisted making a New Jersey
1: joke, <laughs> but a group of
2: parents at a high school soccer game in Hopewell, New Jersey, reportedly spent a considerable amount of time on the sideline yelling at the JV soccer players, saying "Speak English, this is America," and other racist. Um, indications to the players and this is really annoying and it's sadly not an anomaly and one of the things that I want to burn and highlight is the way players youth players have to bear the brunt of things yelled at them slurs that are only continuing to be motivated by a climate that in almost incentivizes but certainly permits white nationalist rhetoric, hate, racism, homophobia, permits it to be screamed from the sideline at junior varsity soccer players on a random day in New Jersey. You shouldn't have to play under those conditions. You shouldn't have to play under those conditions at a professional level. You certainly shouldn't have to play under those conditions as a 15-year-old kid who's just trying to play soccer. It brought back really harmful memories for me And I think that that's important to think about the long history of this. And, you know, I have very vivid memories of slurs coming from the opposing sidelines of being called an animal and no adults speaking up about it and what that means when you're 15 and 16 and 17 and trying to navigate playing a game you love and people want to win so much that... They find it acceptable to berate and yell racist comments at youth, and I think it's only emboldened now, and that is disgusting, and I want to burn it. I want to burn it now. I want to burn it in the past, and I want to burn all the future episodes that we will surely see, but I wish we didn't have to. So burn it down. Burn. Burn. Lindsay, what are you burning this
1: week? Well, someone who I haven't talked about in a while, <laughs> but Derrick Rose this week had a 50-point game, and after all of the on-court struggles the former MVP has been through, this outpouring of points received a, I believe deification is the proper word, from... Sports media fans and many of his favorite fellow players, you know, LeBron James called him a superhero. Basically, every NBA player who's anyone was tweeting congratulations. Derrick Rose is crying after the game. It was quite a scene. The problem, of course, is that two years ago, Derek Rose was on trial for gang rape. And the a jury decided there wasn't enough evidence to go forward with to convict him. However, the woman who accused him has appealed that decision. And the case will be heard again in court in a couple of weeks, among other things that came out in that trial were Derek Rose saying he didn't understand really what consent was, talking about how We men, quote, we can assume what happens, what a woman would want at a late time at night. And there were just some incredibly problematic things, whether or not you ultimately believe he was guilty or not. Of course, all of this was looped into the challenges part of Derrick Rose's story that was alluded to from the announcers who said immediately after Derrick Rose's 50 point performance, I'm neither judge nor jury. So clearly alluding to those towards everyone who talked about how much Derrick Rose had overcome. It's very, very, very problematic to loop in accusations of gang rape into something that can be overcome with a 50-point performance on the field. I realize it's complicated. I realize it's seeing a player who used to be great, but who has struggled and seeing them have a breakthrough game. I understand the emotions that that can bring, and I love the tale of on-court perseverance. But you can't act like this other stuff doesn't matter. You can't trivialize it by looping it in to, I am a quote about, I am neither judge nor jury someone still feels that Derrick Rose raped them. They are still battling in court for justice and that deserves to be considered right alongside anything in, in fact in front of anything he's doing on the court so I just like to burn um, the I am neither judge nor jury comments and the deification of of Derrick Rose when reality is of course much more complicated. Burn. Burn. burn.
2: All right, Jess, take us home. What are you burning this week?
0: Yeah, so I called this for the burn pile days ago. I was like, this one's mine. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, episode 78, Lindsay, Brenda, and Shereen talked about the hell that has been Maryland football since early in the summer, when 19-year-old offensive lineman Jordan McNair collapsed during practice, eventually dying in the hospital from heat stroke. It was a completely preventable death. The discussion last week on Burn It All Down was, per the standard, very, very good. But a lot has happened in the last week, and much of it is worth burning. Despite finding that Maryland football program was a place, quote, where problems festered because too many players feared speaking out, and most importantly, where a player, a 19-year-old young man, died a totally preventable death— the Board of Regents voted to keep D.J. Durkin as head coach. On Tuesday, the president of Maryland, Wallace Lowe, announced this, said he disagreed, and then announced his own impending retirement. In fact, the Washington Post reported that the Board of Regents, which only has the power to fire Lowe, essentially threatened to do that if he fired Durkin. WAPO reported, quote, in his meeting with the Regents last Friday, Lowe explained to the board why he felt the school needed to move on from Durkin. It was made clear that if he wanted to remain in his position, he had no option, said one person close to the situation. I'll just note here that Lowe has taken responsibility on behalf of Marilyn for McNair's death, telling McNair's parents, quote, the university owes you an apology. You entrusted Jordan to our care, and he is never returning home again. Jordan McNair's father said of Durkin's reinstatement, quote, I feel like I've been punched in the stomach and somebody spit in my face. Then on Wednesday this week, following a lot of anger and disbelief around Durkin's return from a range of people, including the governor of Maryland, other politicians, stakeholders, media members, students, and even some football players who walked out of a team meeting, Maryland decided to fire Durkin. He's gone. Good. On Thursday, Wapo reported though, and I cannot fucking believe this, but here it is, that quote. The University System of Maryland Board of Regents recommended this week that the College Park campus retain the athletic trainers who have drawn the bulk of the blame for failing to properly treat Jordan McNair during a May workout. They recommended keeping the people who did not prevent the totally preventable death of a Maryland student. Holy hell. On Friday, the president of the Board of Regents resigned, so he's also now gone, and that's also good. It's a wonder why that was a hard decision. Football-wise, as Bomani Jones pointed out on Twitter, quote, Durkin is 10-15 and 15 at Maryland. That's it. Referring to the head coach's overall losing record. Morals-wise, Jordan McNair died, and the report found a program run by Durkin to be a mess in multiple dangerous ways. What the fuck? Seriously, Shame on the Maryland Board of Regents. I want to burn the system of college football that puts coaches and trainers above everything else, including literally the lives of young players and, you know, ethics, morals, doing the right thing. Burn.
1: Burn. Burn.
2: Now I want to take some time to highlight some badass women of the week. And unfortunately, we start this section by honoring and remembering Zambia referee Leah Namakunde, who unfortunately died, um, succumbed to injuries sustained in a road accident in Zambia this past week. Leah was up and coming referee for FIFA. She joined the elite board of referees in 2016. And as many are reporting and saying out of Zambia, Leah had a bright future with her refereeing career, which has unfortunately just been cut short. So we wanted to send thoughts to friends and family of a life unfortunately lost too soon. So we have some honorable mentions this week. Our... Badass woman of the week last week, Simone Biles, is back on our honorable mention board because she is that amazing. She won an all-around championship for a record-setting fourth time. My favorite thing, if you want to go look on the internet for this image, somebody tweeted at her saying, can we get an update uh, after this world of her with all the medals that she's won around her neck? And she retweeted it and said, do you want me to break my neck? which I adored. So shout out to Simone, still kicking ass. Also want to shout out Sarah Cox, who will become the first woman in history to referee two top flight English men's teams at the Premiership Cup clash happening today at the time of recording. Shout out to you, Sarah. And all the New York marathon runners who are out there right now on Sunday, November 4th, as we're recording, we're thinking of you and all the training you've done to get there. uh, Seize your day today. And a drum roll, please. Our badass woman of the week is Alexa Moreno, the first Mexican gymnast to medal in the World Championship. She received a bronze this week on the vault. And if you remember Alexa from the uh, 2016 games, Alexa was a gymnast that had to deal with the worst type of fat shaming, body shaming, bullying on the internet. Hyper scrutiny about her body, not just from Mexican media, but all over the internet during the championship games. And it was so nice to see her win this medal. And also, she spoke very candidly and openly about what it was like to have that kind of focus on her. And I'm loosely translating here. She said, I, This was not something I expected to happen, but the negative comments were irrelevant. And she talked about how much support she got from various places. And she went on to say, look, many people can do gymnastics. Everyone is different and everyone has their own specialty. I really like the fact that I'm a positive figure, especially especially for girls. So Alexa, yes, you are a positive figure, especially for girls. And not only that, you are a badass woman of the week.
3: Yay!
2: All right,
1: folks, what's
2: good in your world, Lindsay?
1: Oh, why'd you have to call me first? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You guys know I always have the hardest time with this one for some reason. I would say this week, what is good is sleep. I've actually slept a little bit this weekend And I have not been able to do that in months and months. And we also, we got an extra hour of sleep thanks to Daylight Savings Time. So that was exciting as well. So, you know, it's important. I'm feeling slightly more like myself today.
2: That's wonderful to hear. Shireen?
4: I love this segment because I get to share happiness. I'm going to share some happiness with you. So, happy Diwali to all of our flamethrowers. And I want to say that I saw this really cool tweet about a flash mob Bhangra outside the Rogers Arena in Vancouver to celebrate Diwali. And I was like, wow. And normally when I don't see people that are brown doing Bhangra, I recoil. But, but this was so well done. And when I see Asians from any part of Asia, I'm like, okay, this is good. I'm fine. It was beautiful and it brought me joy. I would also like to congratulate Sanya Mirza and Shweb Malik. They type professional tennis player from india and the pakistani cricketer they had a baby last week and what they did was they hyphenated the baby's last name so the baby is known as baby mirza malik now i'm getting a lot of joy out of this because this is kind of unprecedented and in subcontinental culture it's just assumed that the child will take the father's name so despite all the brown misogynists coming out and freaking out about this the two are wonderful they're happy mom is recovering baby's healthy excellent i'm so happy and i hope this becomes a trend
2: that's awesome Jess, what's good in your life?
0: Yeah, so I was not here last weekend because I actually went uh, home to Florida because my dad retired from his civilian job. He retired 20 years ago from the Air Force, and now he is retired from his civilian job. And I got to see my sister, who had flown in from Hong Kong. That's where she lives. So that was very fun. And then Halloween, it was super fun. Uh, my family and I dressed up as David S. Pumpkins and his two skeletons. And we actually had a little skit that we did. There's a video of it on my Instagram. It was just a joy and if you watch the video my absolute favorite thing about it is that when aaron starts dancing because he's the first dancing skeleton my son's face is just he is so happy that we're doing it and then he realizes he's supposed to be in character and he like snaps back but i actually screenshot that pick that like that part of his huge smile when aaron is doing a stupid dance and sent it to aaron earlier this week because it's just given me so much joy this week.
2: That's awesome. And your family is so adorable. (laughs) I also got to see my family this weekend. So I've missed the last few weeks because I was traveling to many different states. I was on the road for a while, but I did get a little bit of a treat when I was in Memphis. My mom and my grandmother and my sister all came into Memphis for kind of 36-hour whirlwind girls day and a half in Memphis. We did... Ah, uh, escape room with my grandmother. <laughs> We escaped. It was epic. It was lovely. I'll send pictures. I got to party with my sister and we just had a really good time. And I am part of the Orange Theory cult now. And I just finished Hell Week. So if you know anything about Orange Theory, Hell Week, you have to complete five out of eight really intense workouts over a week to get a shirt. (laughs) It's like, why are we killing ourselves for a shirt? I don't know, but I really wanted the shirt. And I was traveling for a lot of Hell Week, um, but luckily, Orange Theory is everywhere. And so I was able to complete Hell Week doing four workouts in New Orleans, in Little Rock, in Oxford, Mississippi, and in Memphis, Tennessee before coming home and finishing up a few more workouts here. And I earned my shirt and I'm really excited. So that's my something good. And then my last bonus something good is that I am so, so happy to be back on with you guys. I've missed you dearly and to have all of us together is always good in my world. And Brenda.
3: Now I'm feeling all fuzzy from all of you. But uh, what am I doing? Okay, I'm going to watch Panama versus Argentina, the women's qualifier playoff from CONCACAF versus CONMEBOL on Thursday. I think I'm going to write a little something for it for the equalizer. Just generally... I've written about this group of Argentine women and their politics and collective action for the past i don't know a couple of years now, and I'm so excited for them and also panama i mean either one is going for the for their first you know women's world cup appearance, and so either way it's going to be both sad and joyous um, at the same time and I mean my only other Sort of. I didn't want to do. I I was really extra for Halloween, so I don't want to go back down that road. But I do just want to mention. <laughs> I love Day of the Dead. I celebrated it last week with my Mexican daughters. And voting. Oh, voting. Yeah, I'm really excited to vote. We have a really tight race in this election, and Burn It all down cannot. I think you know support particular candidates at this point without me sharing it. But let me just tell you, Douglas County District, get out there. It is important.
4: Yeah, this is just an extra what's good. I just want to shout out to Lindsay, Jess, Amira, and Brenda. I love you very much. And the fact that all of us are here this week, uh, despite our pre-recording giggle fits, (laughs) I love them. I just wanted to say that, okay, that I just really appreciate you all. And you are definitely inherently always in my what's good.
2: Well, that's it for this week on Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but it can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. We appreciate your views and feedback, so we love when you subscribe, rate, share with a friend, share with two friends. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can also email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And of course, check out our website, runitalldownpod.com. There you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, a link to our Patreon, which just as a reminder, you can join for a little $2 a month, get extra content, access to interviews, giveaways. And oh, just a shout out to our Patreons as always. And a quick update. I know I told you that we'd be mailing you something. I just did want to tell you there was a slight delay, but they are getting out. So you'll definitely have them shortly if you were checking your mailbox and wondering where it was don't worry it is coming to you if it isn't already there by the time you get this so we appreciate you subscribing sharing and tuning in with us every week happy voting day vote and as brenda said and we can't wait to talk to you soon that's it for us have a good day flamethrowers